Electricity or batteries are really good for some applications, but they're not gonna they're not gonna solve all the problems. Um, and so the question is really how do how do we make ener chemical based energy carriers or fuels as efficiently as possible, utilizing those waste streams, and then how do we how do we use all the good work that people have done upstream and actually burn the fuels as efficiently as possible. Welcome to Growing Impact, a podcast by the Institutes of Energy and the Environment at Penn State. Growing Impact explores cutting-edge projects of researchers and scientists who are solving some of the world's most challenging energy and environmental issues. Each project has been funded through an innovative SEED grant program that's facilitated through IEE. I'm your host, Kevin Sliman. Combustible fuels have been around ever since humans discovered they could burn wood. Over time, we discovered new energy sources, fossil fuels, which still dominate the world's energy portfolio. Today, scientists are working to develop new, cleaner, and more efficient fuels. On this episode of Growing Impact, I speak with Jacqueline O'Connor, an associate professor of mechanical engineering at Penn State. She and her team are working on how to turn agricultural and municipal waste into bioproducts, including fuels that can actually have a net negative carbon footprint. Welcome, Jacqueline, to Growing Impact. Thanks, Kevin. I'm really excited to be here. Can you introduce yourself and just give us a, um, a taste of your research background and expertise? My name is Jacqueline O'Connor. I'm an associate professor of mechanical engineering. I started here at Penn State in August of 2013. Before coming here, I did a PhD at Georgia Tech and then uh, was a postdoctoral researcher at Sandia National Labs uh, for a little while and then came here to Penn State. So this is my 10th year at the university. My background is in engine combustion. So I did my PhD in uh, gas turbines in this phenomenon that like 50 people on planet Earth really care about called thermoacoustics. It's the interaction between flames and sound. Um, but I've always really been motivated to study um, engine combustion because that's sort of the source of the emissions problem. Could you talk a little bit about the goal of your project and maybe some of its background? The current project that I'm working on now is looking at combustion characteristics of hydrochars. These are solid alternative fuels that have been uh, proposed for a replacement for coal um, in applications where it's useful to have a solid fuel, either because of transport limitations or because you want a fuel that radiates. A lot of industrial processes um, either rely on the chemistry of the hydrocarbon fuel or just need a fuel that produces a crazy amount of heat, both uh, you know in terms of high temperature and in terms of radiation. And that's where solid fuels can be really useful. But we like to replace coal and these hydrochars, uh, depending on how you make them and how you source them, can actually be a net negative carbon uh, source of fuel. This seed grant is a collaboration between myself doing the experiments, Dr. Jonathan Matthews, who is a professor of energy and mineral engineering here at Penn State. He has a really amazing simulation tool that we're going to be using or that we are using. Um, and then we have a collaborator at Cornell, my good friend Jillian Goldfarb, and she's the one who's actually making the fuels. What are some challenges uh, that need to be addressed for 
biofuel products. So the goal of this project is to better understand the structure of solid fuels that are made through a process called hydrothermal carbonization. So if you think about uh, raw biomasses, um, and this could be things that are grown as a feedstock, they could be waste biomasses like corn stover, or they could be um, even like human-generated waste, like municipal solid waste or restaurant waste or coffee grounds or something like that. Um, all of these have relatively low energy density because there's so much other stuff in plants. Um, and so you can enhance the energy density of biomass fuels by thermally treating them. And there are sort of three different ways that we do this. One is called pyrolization. So basically you make charcoal out of it. Um, this is sometimes also referred to as torrefaction. You can gasify it. So that's pyrolization typically doesn't have any oxygen present. It just carbonizes everything. And we've all seen a charcoal briquette. So that comes from a plant and then it becomes this black solid thing. Um, you can gasify it, which is a really good way to get like the hydrogen and smaller molecules out of it. Or you can use a process called hydrothermal carbonization, where you're basically, you're taking the process that the earth used to make coal, but you're speeding it up in a laboratory over a couple hours. So you put this stuff in water at high pressures and sort of moderate temperatures right near where water becomes a supercritical fluid. And water's a really weird fluid to start out with. And near its supercritical point, it gets even weirder. It becomes a really great solvent. And it allows all these carbonization reactions to occur that wouldn't occur in a highly polarized water environment at regular temperatures and pressures. So with a few surprisingly cheap catalysts, you know, no rare earth metals or anything, um, you can you can get really high value, high dense energy density products out of this process um, in a few hours with a relatively low energy input. What affects how these fuels turn out? Depending on the input stream and how you cook it, basically, uh, you can get really different structure. There are two sort of parts to these um, to these fuels. There's the main carbon char, and then there's these little lobules that end up on the outside, um, and uh, and they have really different uh, chemical composition. We think they're going to ignite really differently, and so we're trying to understand them. In this, so that's sort of the context of the larger projects. The project specifically for the seed grant, uh, right now, uh, you know, I have this ongoing collaboration with my wonderful colleague at Cornell, Jillian Goldfarb. She makes the fuel and then I burn it. It's a great friendship. <laughs> um, we, we actually met at like a wine and cheese night and we were just talking. And so we were friends and then we figured out what each other did. And it was like, oh, we should work together. This is perfect. Um, but, uh, but Jonathan Matthews is the other part of this. And he has a really neat technique to model carbonized materials. He's traditionally used it for coal, 
but wants to extend it for these bio, these biomass based chars. Um, and what we're really interested in is what their structure is and how uh, basically how gas can get in and out of that structure. The first step in burning any solid or carbonaceous solid, I should say, is that it kind of off gases. If you've ever sat in front of a fire, like a campfire, you can hear it kind of hiss and pop. Those are gases escaping from the uh, wood itself in a process called devolatilization. So those volatile gases are actually what's burning first. And the ease with which a char can devolatilize is going is probably the biggest controlling time scale for how fast it's going to burn, how complete it's going to burn, what its emissions are going to be. And so we want to better understand the 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 actual structure so we can better understand our experimental data. Um, and uh, when we measure things like ignition delay time. How do Jonathan's models assist in this process? The cool thing about these models is that he can take images from transmission electron microscopy um, and actually read the image and understand the structure using some really advanced image analysis tools and then turn that into a molecular model of the uh, char itself. So it, he can he can put the gaps in, he can put in all those internal passages where the gas is gonna escape. Um, and then we can look at, you know, we can, we can look at the structure and he's actually done some work previously to start to calculate, um, you know, how, how you would predict these defolatilization rates from understanding the structure. So the C grant is really providing us funding to do two things. And for my group, this is all totally new. Um, and uh, for Jonathan's group, this is an extension of a tool that they already have. Um, we'll be doing the microscopy. So we've never done microscopy before. My grad students learning how to use all these machines at the MCL, which is excellent. Um, and so we'll have really good images, which in and of itself will be helpful, but then there'll be the input to the model so that we can we can understand transport, um, particularly mass transport better in these solids. Are you finding that so Jillian's work to either Jonathan's or yours and then yours and Jonathan's? Are they then feeding back and forth to each other? Like you learn something and then that goes back to Jillian and she thinks about a way, a new way to build, you know, to create the fuel or the, the bioproduct. Are they, are you informing one another back and forth essentially? Very much so. Um, and we're, you know, we're still at the beginning, um, but that's, that's very much the, A, it's a great team and we work really well together. So that, and our students are are really great and, and working well together. So you know, that just sort of organically comes up in the discussion. Um, but yes, that's very much it, especially I think the insights that we're going to get from the results of the modeling, you know, which we're, we're just starting. Um, it's uh, that that's going to, that's going to tell us much more about how to tune the process um, because you you get such a, I call it like a big number out of combustion. You get an ignition delay time, which is dependent on six zillion things, right? But um, but the models are going to give us much more detailed 
numbers um, and and quantities that then we'll be able to tune the process with. This project is not only creating potential new fuels for the future, but it's removing wastes from the waste stream. So it's 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 a it's a two for one, if you will. It's two benefits out of one potential in one project, I guess I'll say. Yeah, absolutely. And that that sort of twofer that you get is one of the both benefits, but also challenges of alternative fuels. Um, you know, there are a lot of waste streams um, that one could capture, and there are a lot, a lot of different upgrading um, processes that you could use, right? So another, the example that I used of animal waste lagoons, they're also really good options for uh, anaerobic digestion, right, to make um, renewable natural gas. And so, uh, and I'm sure they could be used for other things, natural fertilizers. And I don't, I don't really know that much about poop. So <laughs> that's the end of my understanding. But, but what I do know, <laughs> right, there are a lot of different ways that you could use these waste streams. And so one of the challenges of alternative fuels uh, that we're not tackling in this grant, but I certainly think about you know, in motivating the work that I do is, yes, you have all these waste streams, but they have a lot of different ways that they could be used. How do you balance out the both the carbon benefit of using the waste streams and the final product, as well as the economic benefit to the farmer or to the company that's making the product or anything like that? What are some of the facets that you need to be mindful of when developing new fuels? One of the other things that you really need to consider is how well these things burn. Mm -hmm. um, we have a lot of experience burning coal, um, and there is a shocking amount of fundamental scientific research that's still happening on making that process more efficient. The energetic content of a renewable fuel, its physical structure, its chemical structure, how it moves through the air, how it, how this, these diffusional and transport processes happen on a very small scale. All of these can have large scale effects on the operability and performance of a big furnace system that would, you know, or a boiler system that would actually burn these fuels. And so I think one of the things that we're really motivated by on the combustion side of the work is you you can't just switch these things out, right? You can't take coal out and put hydrochar in. People have done studies of co-firing with coal and biomass and coal and other, you know, uh, these thermally processed biomasses. They just burn really differently. And if you have a system that's really tuned to burn coal efficiently, then it's probably not going to burn this hydrochar efficiently. And so, and, and that's bad, right? We just spent all this time trying to make the process of making these things with the lowest carbon intensity possible. And then if you just shove them in a combustion system that wasn't designed for them, you're going to lose a lot of those benefits. The work that Jonathan and I are doing are really is is really focusing on the on the burning part, so that we have a better idea of how to implement this this fuel successfully into an existing system. 
What are some challenges that need to be addressed for biofuel products? There are a number of challenges in adopting bioproducts, biofuels in particular. And I, I think they fall into three categories. One is just the source of the feedstock um, and where it's going to come from and what else it can be used for. I think the second challenge is scaling up the the conversion process. If we're going to replace uh, large amounts of hydrocarbon fuels with these thermal processes, um, the scaling, the efficiency in the scaling, the infrastructure, all those sorts of things are extremely challenging. And many of the challenges have nothing to do with science, <laughs> right? They have a lot to do with economics and, and incentives and taxes and things like that. The third challenge is, you know, on the utilization side, do the devices that we're using fuels in, are they fuel flexible? That's the, the word that we use in the biz. And there are certain devices, particularly newer ones, where folks have de designed combustion systems knowing like, okay, we need this to be fuel flexible and still really efficient. Um, you can get older devices to be fuel flexible. Uh, they just won't be as efficient. Um, and in our world, efficiency equals CO2 output. The thing that I am trying to do in my own work and in my engagement with IEE is to talk to the people who are at each step of that process, to spend time with agricultural engineers who are thinking about feedstocks so that they know at the end of the chain what we're thinking about on the device and utilization side, to partner really tightly with folks who are doing the synthesis so we can have that feedback between combustion performance and synthesis. So that's one of the benefits, I think, of working with IEE and having such wonderful colleagues at a university like Penn State, where we have folks thinking about the plants and, you know, the farmers and the supply chains, the people in the middle on the synthesis side and then the people on the utilization side. How will bioproducts ultimately improve our world? Bioproducts improve the world from a carbon perspective in two big ways. One, they provide a pathway for wastes to be utilized. Then the second great benefit is replacing fossil fuels with, uh, with lower carbon intensity fuels. And I strongly, strongly believe that chemical-based energy carriers will still be necessary for at least a century, if not more, into the future. And chemical-based energy carrier is a fancy word for fuel. Um, if you look at the energy infrastructure that we have right now, over half of the energy we use is in chemical-based energy carriers. Um, and... And we have both a physical infrastructure and kind of a, a lifestyle infrastructure, if you want to call it that, that uh, that requires transportable energy carriers. Electricity or batteries are really good for some applications, but they're not going to they're not going to solve all the problems. Um, and so the question is really, how do how do we make ener chemical-based energy carriers or fuels as 
efficiently as possible, utilizing those waste streams. And then how do we how do we use all the good work that people have done upstream and actually burn the fuels as efficiently as possible? What are some of the results from the project so far? On the science side, we're very much midstream. Um, we have been successfully burning hydrochars for a while now. We're the students, uh, my students gotten in the lab and um, started to learn the microscopy. Um, and there's been a lot of feedback on the combustion to synthesis side. In this next semester, um, we're really gonna start focusing on the modeling side now that we have kind of a baseline understanding of what's going on with the combustion so that we know what to target for, um, you know, which uh, which chars we want to image and then which ones we want to model um, and look deeper into. So the other exciting thing that's happening is I, with a couple colleagues, have edited a book. It's called Renewable Fuels. Uh, sources, conversion, and utilization. Um, it's published by Cambridge Press and it's coming out in December 2022. So I'm extremely excited about that book. Like I said, I think chemical energy carriers are going to be really important. And we want, we put together the book in such a way that people from all different parts of this problem could approach the books. Thank you, Jacqueline, for spending time on Growing Impact and talking about your research. Thanks so much for having me. This was a really great opportunity. If folks want to learn more, they can visit my lab's website, which is sites.psu.edu slash RFDL, which stands for the Reacting Flow Dynamics Lab, or shoot me an email. I'd love to hear more. This has been Season 3, Episode 6 of Growing Impact. To learn more about IEE and to hear previous episodes, read podcast transcripts, and to see related graphics from Growing Impact episodes, please visit iee.psu.edu slash podcast. Thank you for listening.